Hello everyone, it's June 4th, 2019. This week we had an Omega nozzle failure, Strata Launch might be closing shop, and we have Laura Forsick back to answer all those questions you've had about how to get a job in aerospace. It's free career advice for the coolest jobs ever, and liftoff. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 213 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. Uh, so can I commandeer the uh, the opening banter? Go for am, it. Am I allowed to do that? All right. So uh, an amazing game called Outer Wilds came out this week. It's very, very good. If you haven't played it, you need to go play it. It was originally released like six years ago as a guy's master's thesis. He was he was doing a, a master's degree in storytelling in video games. And so he built a video game as his thesis. And it's this really incredible game uh, that has a lot of really weird mechanics, but it, it's essentially an exploration game in a tiny solar system. I was having a conversation with somebody so the Kerbal Space Program solar system is a tenth of the real uh, of of the Earth. Like Kerbal is a tenth the size of the Earth, and then roughly the planets are, you mm-hmm. know, ten times closer to their to the Kerbal Sun than our solar system. And so I was talking to a, a user on Reddit. We we're trying to estimate the size reduction for outer wilds and i was saying is it like a hundredth and we were kind of going back and forth and it looks like it's maybe a ten thousandth the size of the the real solar system so very very (laughs) small but you know that's to make it feel like you can well you you can explore an entire planet and then go explore another planet and then another planet it's so good like i said there are a lot of weird mechanics that I, i won't uh spoil for you but it's very feel good. Uh, the The artistic direction is really fantastic. Uh, your space explorers, but like your ships are, uh, they look Soviet, but also like uh, camping themed. Like there's a lot of wood, and it you know nobody's spacesuit looks the same as anybody else's. Everybody plays musical instruments, and audio is a big part of of the game uh, there are a lot of uh musical themes like there are multiple musical themes for each planet and it 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 feels so you can roast marshmallows in space like what else do i need to say <laughs> this does look wild i've seen some of these pictures and as oh, far as the scaling yeah. goes wow like uh-huh. it looks like if you're on top of a mountain or if you climb up yeah. a tree you can see the curvature of your planet <laughs> no you can see the curvature of the planet standing on the surface oh that's fun you don't you don't need to be up at all and it's it's very very good um i i help moderate the subreddit and so i've seen a lot of a lot of fan reactions and the overwhelming majority of them are positive um there was controversy because they're uh they originally said they were going to release on steam and now they're um, an Epic Game Store exclusive for probably a year. We don't know how long, but probably a year. Um, so people freaked out about that. Um, also, there are a lot of technical issues. People are having frame rate issues, and it doesn't natively support uh, ultra-wide monitors, and there's no field of view adjustment. A lot of people are having game-breaking bugs that won't let them advance you know, past the main menu and that kind of thing, mm-hmm. uh, or, or crashing, but the over, I mean, the, the story and the visuals and everything are amazing. I'm playing it on uh, a very low spec, uh, PC laptop. Oh yeah. And they they originally said they were going to support Mac and they're, they're not doing that at the moment. So I'm playing it on a, on a really low end PC laptop. And even with all of the settings cranked all the way down, the game still looks amazing. They put a lot of thought into their visuals. There, there are some technical issues. There are some, you know, 
like political issues, but um, the game itself is is really really a masterpiece. I have very few things to argue with it. I will be putting that on my watch list when it does come out on Steam. Well, that was cool video game talk. Let's move on yeah. to space flight history. <laughs> I'm always happy with video game talk. And so last week uh, you called our listeners chumps, and you said they would never <laughs> guess yep. what the answer is well, to this. Heated the call. Yeah, so uh, this week's chumps, and we got we got a lot of them. Uh, Evan of Rockets of Music, uh, Bill Russum, uh, new name. Hi, Bill. Cy uh, Kyle, Jason Friesen, Valentin Frank, who s- said, uh, quote, us chumps are beyond the concept of needing luck. Uh, ben Hallert, Chubby Turkosi, Steve Rue, a, a new name, Rio. Hi, Steve. And uh, Neil Forrester, who emailed and said, you know what? I, I don't have a Twitter. I know that automation is important, but if, uh, Mm. so if I don't get my name on the show, that's fine. Uh, but you know, I'm just going to email you and I, I remembered you, Neil. So just, just a reminder to everybody, if you definitely want to have your name, I only guarantee to read your name. If you use Twitter, make a public tweet from a visible account, right? Not a private account and use the hashtag this week SF. That way my bot can grab it. If you uh, send me a direct message. If you email me, I will try my best, but I uh, don't promise anything. All right. This week in spaceflight history, it's a short one, but it's uh, June 8th, 1965. It was the launch of Luna 6. And so many people guess this one, which I think is fantastic. So uh, back in 1963, Luna 4 failed to make a mid-course correction burn. Uh, it just didn't start up its engine. And so it uh, flew past the moon and went back into an Earth orbit. And I don't know, it, it it's probably still up there if it hasn't hit the moon on subsequent flybys. My, my guess is that it's going to be captured and then uh, crash into the moon. I should probably have looked that up. I don't know how I would look that up. I don't think we're tracking it. Uh, 1965, Luna 5 uh, failed to land. It just crashed into the surface of the moon. So then Luna 6, you know, ooh, lucky number 6. Luna 6 successfully started its mid-course correction burn. Unfortunately, uh, the command that they sent up to tell it to do this burn incorrectly set the the burn timer and so it just didn't shut down its engine uh until it literally ran out of fuel it burned all of its fuel um doing a a mid-course correction so it flew straight past the moon and off into solar orbit interestingly enough though they you know they had good hardware in space there was nothing wrong with the lander so they decided to use it as sort of a little training uh, regime, a little training opportunity uh, for the folks in mission control, and they pretended as if it was actually landing on the moon. So they, you know, jettisoned the lander, they deployed the airbags and did all this stuff, and uh, were, were very happy with it as a very expensive training mission. But anyway, it's, it's closest approach to the moon, the closest it got to the surface of the moon was 159,600 12.8 kilometers, which is uh, 99,000 yeah. miles. So there you go. That's this week in spaceflight history. And uh, so far as we know, yeah, it did enter a heliocentric orbit, but past that, you know, we just kind yeah, of we track we it. didn't track it all the way into a heliocentric orbit, but it, I mean, it definitely had the escape velocity to do that. Who knows? Maybe it has also been recaptured uh, and crashed into the moon. You know, it yeah. it could mm-hmm. totally happen, and, and we wouldn't uh, necessarily know about it. Mm-hmm. So, what is our clue for next week? For our all chumps. right, yeah, uh, all right. Get this one, ch- chumps. Uh, no, I'm not. I'm not going to say that because uh, I don't want to have to read that many names again. 
All right, next week in 1963, the clue is I know that space food is bad, but this would make me puke. No idea here. There's a lot of bad space food out there. I'm going to say. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I've never eaten any of it, um, except for, you know, freeze-dried things that people say are space mm -hmm. food. But yeah, astronaut ice cream, which is super, yeah. super crumbly. Yeah, I have no idea what that is in reference to. But if someone out there thinks they know, just give us a tweet with the hashtag this week, SF, and good luck. First of the news, uh, Stratolaunch rumors. So is Stratolaunch shut down or not? I thought that it was because I heard about it, but then I guess you found some more information saying that that's not the case. Um, specifically, I think it was the chief the chief operations officer or someone like that yeah. saying, no, we're still in operation. Yeah, but I mean, specifically Reuters has five sources, four of which they say are like industry experts or, you know, whatever that jargon is uh intimately mm -hmm. familiar with the situation uh but five in total and they all say that they're shutting down <laughs> it's like oh okay this sucks yeah um strata launch is awesome i mean i don't necessarily know if we need another air launch vehicle but like if you're gonna do it go big right like let's <laughs> let's add a little kerbal joy to the world and, and just as a reminder strata launch flew uh, for the first time in April. So they, they have one flight under their belt, and now there are rumors that they're not going to be doing another one. I remember back when Paul Allen died, immediately a lot of people were saying how they're probably going to just try to honor his legacy and then fly it just the one time, and then after that it would probably that'd be the end of that. And so this seems consistent with that. That's a good point that maybe they just did it to honor his memory, and that's the real reason why, but they didn't say so. I don't know. That's probably more of a conspiracy theory than anything. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, like, not, I mean, shouldn't be so blasé about it, but you know, keep the keep the jobs going, maybe, you know, try out some new technology while you're doing it. Like, I, I don't know. I could imagine that there there was still, you know, money in the business. They still had the opportunity to do it. And so they figured, all right, well, you know, we could just let this kind of disband now and close down. But they uh, let's at least fly this thing. It's the largest, you know, vehicle or it's the largest plane ever made. And so, you know, depending on how you define it. The Rock, R O K, or sorry, R O C. It's also the it's also the coolest name I think for a plane. As someone who's a fan of Final Fantasy games, <laughs> so yeah, the person who said they are still in operation was actually just a representative. Uh, it's not named who it was, but she said that you know they still remain operational and declined further comment. And I guess declining further comment is maybe a clue right there. So mm -hmm. perhaps they're just on the verge of doing something. I like what Sam says in the chat. Uh, he says it's likely also just to attract attention to see if there would be any willing buyers that that's a good point mm -hmm. so yeah just a short little update on strata launch and let's move on to the other story the big one the omega failure um yeah. wow yeah uh -huh. the mega omega failure well I, I guess not a mega omega failure but uh definitely something that needs to be looked into so this was a solid rocket motor that uh towards the end of its burn it just like blew out <laughs> Um, mm -hmm. It's nozzle. So, what is going on there? It's very refreshing after having to look at that uh, very difficult to see uh, dragon capsule explosion footage <laughs> to just get this like beautiful high res <laughs> boom. <laughs> yeah, with uh, with dr uh, drone shot and everything. I mean, it was mm. you, you gotta love. Uh, I was gonna say orbital ATK's uh, solid rocket test facility, but uh, it's Northrop Grumman's now. This uh, is. Northrop Grumman's next generation ascent vehicle. They inherited it from Orbital ATK, but uh, yeah, Omega. We haven't talked about Omega too much 
on the show, have we? Not really. In fact, I kind of had to look back into it because I'd sort of forgotten exactly what it is. (laughs) Yeah, me too, for sure. So it's basically caster engines stacked on top of each other. So in the show notes I wrote down, it's Liberty on Crack, uh, which I I don't think is a bad characterization. Uh, But yeah, it's basically a shuttle SRB that flies uh, payloads to, to orbit, which... I think it's a cool idea. It's all the solid rocket uh, motors, right? Because it's even got the two little gem side boosters too. Yeah, that's the the heavy variant, right? Has got the the gem side boosters. But it still does have a cryogenic upper stage, though. Yeah, I was gonna say, it, it, too bad it doesn't have a Pam upper stage. That'd be pretty cool. <laughs> and apparently, uh, the upper stage originally was going to be made by Blue Origin, but they've actually switched to Aerojet Rocketdyne. So yeah, this is all stuff that I I guess I'd kind of forgotten because. I did not realize that the Blue Origin was going to be making that upper stage. Or maybe I I do have a vague recollection of that, a cryogenic upper stage. So that was what uh, the BE-3, right? Is that the Hydrolox engine that Blue Origin I, has? That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I believe that's the one they were talking about for uh, for Omega. So the whole purpose of Omega is just like another heavy lift or possibly, I guess, like medium to heavy lift launch vehicle. They can launch various payloads into orbit mm-hmm. for the Air Force and clients like that. So there's some talk about if this would have impacted an actual launch. And that's a good question. It's kind of hard mm-hmm. to tell because it happened within what, like the last five seconds or so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right at the end. And at that point, that stage is actually jettisoned because they do tend to burn for a while while longer because they don't want to have those weird transients that are kind of like tailing off. So maybe it wouldn't have been an issue, but it could be an issue if this could have happened at any point and it just happened to happen towards the end. Right. That's kind of what I'm wondering. Right. Yeah. And even even if this was like directly connected to being at the end of the burn, you still don't want to have a nozzle that explodes at the end of your burns. Yeah. Well, and and my concern here is not flying debris necessarily, but more control stability. Mm. Like, can you imagine uh, doing a successful burn and then at the end, all of a sudden just spinning out of control because, you know, Mm -hmm. you have no nozzle to to vector your thrust. Right. Because this this is the main, the core engine. This is the the big one. Yeah. And this looked like the force segment, right? Is that... Is that how long it looked to I you I think guys? it was two segments. So Sam in the chat has an answer, of course. Uh, he says it was a two-segment with a dummy upper. So there we go. That makes okay. sense. Uh, okay, the, the burn time is much the same. More segments burn with more thrust, not longer. And that makes sense because it burns from the inside out, not from the top down. There okay. you go. Yeah. This footage is really, really good. In the show notes, we'll link to Scott Manley's uh, dissection discussion with slow-mo footage and fading back and forth from pre-burn to post-burn. Yeah, that was a uh, nice touch. Uh-huh. So I, I suppose one possibility that has been mentioned is that maybe a huge chunk of the solid propellant hit the inside of the, the nozzle mm-hmm. and maybe that's what caused it. Yeah, this seems reasonable. Mm-hmm. So it seems like, so it's either the fuel or the nozzle, right? It's kind of the Or other... any other part of the rocket. <laughs> Fair enough. It might just be like a manufacturing defect in the nozzle. Do you think that's uh-huh. a possibility? Like maybe there was a pre-existing you know, we, crack? We've had a lot of metallurgical forgery, oh, I guess. Uh, yeah, falsified results. That You think of that one company. Yeah, we, we don't have it in the show notes, but um, uh, SpaceX is now uh, suing somebody for faking metallurgical analysis. And then uh, somebody else had a fairing that didn't deploy properly. Russia had this issue that, you know, it got pretty bad a couple years ago. 
And I wonder if if the same, you know, market forces, et cetera, are pushing American manufacturing into doing the exact same thing. And I guess that's probably just a symptom of a growing space industry. But I mean, who knows? Like we, we could get really, uh, really Illuminati here. But yeah, no, that's that's definitely on the table. And even. I would say even less nefarious than that is maybe just, you know, the defect was just missed, right? We have plenty yeah. of examples of just, you yeah. know, whatever team and, you know, redundancy checks were supposed to be able to catch these things just didn't work. And you ended up with maybe some little defect on the yeah, inside we, of the nozzle that kept heating up and heating up. And it just took until basically the end for it to go pop. Totally a possibility. Great footage, though. <laughs> Great footage. Time for some short and sweet, just three of them, which is the standard number. I don't know why I said just, but what's our first one? All right. So first up, all 60 Starlink satellites are doing well. According to a SpaceX spokesperson, all 60 satellites have deployed their solar rays and are steadily climbing from their 440-kilometer orbit to their 550-kilometer target orbit. Elon Musk pointed out during a conference call that there was a possibility that some satellites might not function properly, and a small possibility that none of them would. As they approach their target orbit, their brightness will slightly diminish. Additionally, Musk said SpaceX will look into reducing the constellation's albedo in order to not negatively impact astronomy. That's good news. Good news for Dennis. Poor radio people, though. That doesn't help them. Oh, yeah, that's true. Uh, But anyway, Hayabusa 2 successfully deploys target marker after earlier aborted attempt. After aborting its first attempt at Operation PPTD, or Pinpoint Touchdown, in which the Hayabusa 2 spacecraft drops a target marker to add in its upcoming sampling of an artificial crater, the mission successfully deployed the beanbag-like marker last week. Dropped at an altitude between 10 and 40 meters, it landed in the crater's vicinity, Area C01, as planned. The second and final sampling of asteroid Ryugu is expected to take place over the next month or so. And finally, an update on the Crew Dragon anomaly. NASA's commercial crew program manager Kathy Luters has updated the NASA Advisory Council regarding the test stand anomaly. The update still offers no insight into the exact cause of the accident, only that changes might need to be made to the Super Draco system. This has led to speculation that the exact cause of the anomaly is not yet known, but also that the issue only arose as a result of splashdown in the Atlantic, in which case the solution may Maybe maintenance rather than redesign. So maybe they just need to switch out engines and then that'll fix the problem. Yeah, right. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns, and we have... Okay, yeah, I do need to amend this. So it's not questions, comments, and correction burns. It should be something else additionally and, you know, whatever. So, Ben, you have something else to tell us <laughs> or ask our audience, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, our RSS feed, if you subscribe, you can go back 100 episodes. We're currently on episode 213, so you cannot access the first uh, 113 episodes of our show and uh, i get tweets all the time people asking hey what 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 happened to these and it's just squarespace they decided that they don't want uh, rss feeds to contain more than 100 items i emailed them and asked them to update this and (laughs) they said well no we're not going to do it because it'll take up too much data on users uh mobile mobile data i'm like well that's that's not your choice they also said that it was um too big of a technical uh issue and that it would stress their servers and i'm like rss feeds are literally the Mm small like the easiest 
lowest data way of moving moving this kind of data around i mean it's they don't even contain the audio files it's just a text file it, right yeah <laughs> mind-boggling to me that they've made this arbitrary decision but you know i figured well squarespace like in their ads they don't you know they don't say we are good for podcasters they say we're good for everybody else and so you know as long as they're not marketing themselves toward podcasters we're kind of shoehorned in and you know we'll do what we're going to do but then Brady Heron, a famous YouTuber of Number File and Hello Internet, like all, all these big, huge, kind of niche, uh, wonderful, wonderful internet things, uh, Brady Heron gets it into his head that he doesn't like the fact that he can't get more than 100 episodes into an RSS feed. And so he starts a hashtag and starts bugging Squarespace. And since he has much more clout than we do, he got it done. So my question to you guys, well, so uh, Squarespace now lets you choose between 100 items and 300 items. It's not a no-brainer decision, though, because if you switch to the 300-item version, they limit uh your show notes so my question to you guys is our show notes are, are really thorough in the rss feed if you're listening to this in a podcast player and a podcast app if you can swipe over or swipe you know whatever you do to view the show notes you get everything in there if you can display images you get all the images uh, if you can display uh, links, there are links already there that you can click on right away. And I think that's really important um, because I listen to shows like 99% Invisible, which are really, really amazing. And I want to go learn more about the things that they're talking about or see the things that they're talking about in photos. But their notes are, you know, just two paragraph descriptions of the episode and, and no real content. You have to go to their website for that. So um, I, I think the show notes are really important. Are they important to you guys? We get way more click-throughs on our show notes than we get uh, people visiting our website. So I think that it, it looks like people uh, value them. But do you value them more than being able to go back and listen to all of our episodes without having to go to our website and download them one by one? Uh, I'd love to hear what you guys think. I would be kind of surprised if we're going to value the 300 episodes just because you know, there are thousands and thousands of people downloading the episode every week and only tens and tens of people actually going back and listening through all of our older episodes. So I, I think my default assumption is Squarespace got this wrong and we're not going to use this feature. But I wanted to put it out there um, just because I complain about it so often on Twitter. <laughs> um, I, I'd love to hear what you guys think. It really surprises me that, frankly, that anyone looks at the show notes because that's not a thing that I do for any podcast, really. I mean, maybe every once in a while, but that's just not a feature that I ever use. So it really does amaze me that people actually look stuff up. Um, I guess they're just more thorough than I am. I, I mostly go looking for photos when somebody's like, oh, let me describe this. And it's like, well, mm -hmm. okay, it's a good description, but I still need to see it. See, what I do is I just like look up whatever they're talking about. Like I just, you know, search for it. Yeah. I don't refer to the notes, but I probably should. I don't do it too often either, but I, um, when I do, it's mostly for like technical shows when I just want to be able to follow up on something in a little more detail. But I guess, you know, Googling tends to also work yeah and, and i'd like to point out that there's a better solution than any of this um you can subscribe to our mailing list every tuesday at, at noon pacific the show notes go out whether or not the episode has been published yet so if you want you can see what the episode's going to be a little bit ahead of time or may maybe like an hour at a time but uh you will get all of our show notes with the links with the photos 
in your email inbox. And that way you can either look at the photos ahead of time and just know what we're talking about, or you can listen to the show and then go back and look at, you know, look and see what you missed. Uh, but I, I think that's the best solution. I, I'm really happy with the way that that's working. Okay. And the next up, uh, everybody's heard about AXM paper space models. Um, they're the best paper space models. Very, very good. It's all paper crafts. So you um, download a PDF and print it out on light cardstock, probably not printer paper or heavy cardstock. It's probably right in the middle that works. And then you cut them out uh, and you glue them together and you build these really, really gorgeous uh, models. They have the entire space station and multiple shuttle missions, uh, multiple SpaceX missions and SLS. And it's so great. The only problem is that you have to print them out yourself. And if you don't have access to a nice printer, it kind of doesn't work so well for you. So uh, somebody else has started a store called the World Flight Store. And actually, um, they didn't just start it. I, I believe they are just starting their spacecraft section. Um, so they, they have a bunch of aircraft, uh, but now they have spacecraft. Right now they have a 1 to 160 scale uh, SpaceX uh, Falcon Heavy. They have a 1 to 300 Space Shuttle Discovery. Um, they have a Proton and they have a Saturn V. And you can buy... Oh, I'm sorry. The uh, Space Shuttle is die cast, not, not paper. So it looks like the only two that are, are paper are the Falcon Heavy and the Proton. But anyway, you can buy the kit. Uh, they will send you all of the the paper cutouts. And that way you can do the fun part, which is assembling, and not the frustrating part, which is printing over and over and over, trying to get it to look right. Mm -hmm. And so they, they posted on the SpaceX subreddit, and I said, hey, this is pretty awesome. Can you offer our listeners? You know, I told them, hey, we're going to talk about you on the show one way or the other. Do you want to offer our listeners any deals and, and try to uh, boost your sales? And they said, yeah, sure. We'll give you guys free shipping. So if you go to worldflightstore.com and enter orbital you will get free shipping so that's just the word orbital uh, and there'll be a link in the show notes as well yeah it's a pretty cool looking little paper rocket and launch tower so it's both the falcon heavy yeah and the transporter rector yeah very neat so with us now we have laura forchick returning to the show hi laura hi Thanks for having me on. Uh, yeah, it's it's great to have you back. So uh, there's this thing on Reddit that really bugs me. People are constantly asking career questions in mostly the NASA subreddit. And it's the same questions over and over and over. You know, when it's space questions that are the same basic questions over and over and over, I can answer them. But with career questions, I, I just don't have an answer. So I thought what I would do is go and borrow some time from our favorite uh, space career counselor, and we can go through and answer some of these questions. So Laura was really nice and she agreed to do this. So I've got a list of questions since they're coming from Reddit. They're mostly uh, about internships and getting jobs at NASA. But I, I thought we'd just uh, run through these. Uh, you ready, Laura? I'm ready. Uh, so the first category that I see all the time is uh, just generally, how do I improve my chances at getting an internship? So specifically, I grabbed uh, one question to quote from. It says, I'm a mechanical engineer hoping to get an internship for summer 2020. I'm a rising junior that year. 
Hopefully I will reach a total GPA of around 3.8 or 4 in that year. I'm also in my university's rover, rover and satellite design team, both mechanical. Uh, oh, both. I'm on the mechanical team, it sounds like. I will be tutoring Chem 1 and linear algebra next year as well voluntarily. So this sounds to me like a student who is pretty much setting everything up correct in order to get an internship. Is this what every intern, a potential intern has to look like? And is there anything that this particular person could do to improve their chances? Yeah, that, that sounds like a strong candidate to me. Not every intern needs to have a top GPA or have um, good experience doing hands-on projects, but it certainly helps. So what you're trying to do as an applicant is to build up your portfolio so that you have a number of things to point to as to why NASA should pick you. And there's a number of things that NASA would look at. It would They will look at your GPA, your research experience, your, um, your status as a student. So whether you are a freshman in undergrad or whether you are a graduate student, and they will look at all of the recommendation letters that you need to submit. They'll look at your essays. And the more demonstrated experience that you have and the, the more connection to the project, so it's not just um, you blindly following someone's directions without really understanding it, the more that you are tied to the research, the more hands-on it is if it's an engineering project or the more it's yours, that will really help you. Um, so not to say that everyone has or will get some kind of hands-on research experience before they apply, but it really, really does help. And not everyone's going to have a 4.0 GPA at a, at a four. Um, and that's okay too. Not everyone needs to. I believe the current cutoff is 3.0 GPA. Between a 3.0 and a 4.0, you, you'll be uh, looked at, you'll be considered. Um, how to improve chances. So that sounded like a strong candidate. So for me, it would be looking at what this person is saying in their essay. Um, the you, Depending on the internship, you're going to have to fill out at least one essay as to why you want to apply. And, and the key there is to um, really dive into your ex your your expressions, your um, personal experience, and your motivations. So you don't want to just apply to a NASA internship just because it looks good on your resume. Yes, it will look good on your resume, but you want to have some other motivation as to why you want to work at NASA, why you want to be an intern. Um, it's always been your dream, um, but that's also cliche, right? So maybe stay away from some of the things that are going to make you sound like every other applicant and dive into the, some of the things that are going to make it more personal to you so that you stand out. And this is really where um, non-traditional students or people with... Um, different backgrounds can really shine because you don't have to be an engineering student to apply to NASA either. NASA has a wide variety of disciplines that they consider. Um, so that's not to say that there's nothing there's nothing wrong with being an engineer, of course, and, and most of the opportunities will be engineering, but you make yourself stand out by based on what it is that you have done and what it is that you are motivated to do. What is your calling in a sense? Why are you here in this career? Um, what is it that you want to change about the world? <laughs> you know, you really dive into those personal statements and that'll help you stand out. Professor recommendations also help a great deal, especially if you are close to professors. So if you can ask a recommendation from a professor you're close to, it doesn't even need to be a STEM professor. It could be someone like the head of a club, you know, the, the teacher for a club, you know, somebody that you're very close to who knows you well, who can speak to you on a personal letter. So it's not such a form letter because if it's a form letter. It's not going to stand out. But if a professor really knows you, they can write you a really good recommendation letter as to why 
you are the standout candidate. Well, so you mentioned some career options that people might not be aware of at NASA. Like, could you list just like a few of those? Because I honestly don't know too much about what those could be. Sure. Yeah, there's a lot. I think there's a misconception that you need to be a STEM major in order to intern at NASA. In fact, when I was a freshman undergrad, so here I am, I am starry eyed. I got, got into college majoring in astrophysics and that, that's a hard science. And I contacted, I was at, I was in Florida on the space coast and I contacted Kennedy Space Center's education office and I asked them about being an intern. And somebody wrote me back with really bad advice saying that they only take applicants from engineers. Turns out they don't and they didn't at that time and they don't now. They have a wide variety of internship opportunities, not just STEM. Um, so I'm thinking law and policy. They have a policy office and international relations. They have an archives office, so history. Um, they have a multimedia office, so they take multimedia interns, communications. Uh, so really, just keep looking. If you are not an engineer, if you're not a scientist, or um, you want to try something different even, maybe you are a scientist or engineer and you just want to try your hand at something a little bit different, look out to see what else NASA has advertised on their websites. Oh, they have a social media office that's huge. They take social media interns. I guess it's not surprising since, you know, they do those NASA socials now. And there are, I don't know how many people, but quite a few of them that are there just for that reason. Right. Think about all that NASA does. And NASA is not just this, you know, hard science, hard engineering organization. There's, There's mostly that, but there's so many other things that go into it. And, and so don't feel limited by the fact that um, there's a stereotype out there that you have to be an engineer. You, you don't. I mean, there, engineer is going to be the majority of the opportunities, but there's lots of other opportunities out there if you look. Cool. Like I'm not anywhere near, obviously I'm too old to be an intern. I'm out of college and like this is already interesting. <laughs> All right, I'm going to pause you right there because that's another misconception. You are not oh, too great. old. Okay. There's no such thing as too old. Um, I believe the requirements are that you need to be an active student and that's it. And so there are non-traditional students. In fact, when I, I went through several NASA internship programs and during one of my programs, there was a, a middle-aged mother who was going to school. I don't remember her degree, but um, she was there as an intern that summer because it's, it's a variety of people who are students and students need internship opportunities opportunities to get the career experience that they want to have to continue on in their careers. And you could be of any age to be a student. Okay. That's really cool. I never even thought about that. Um, I actually have another question in here. Uh, is there a lower age requirement? So here was a, uh, a Reddit user who's 16. That's a good question. I believe all NASA internships are currently limited to age 16 and older. I know that there are high school programs and I think those high school programs limited to 16 and up. However, NASA is a pretty flexible organization and there are unofficial opportunities out there for younger students. They Mm -hmm. might not be through an official internship program and they might be shorter, maybe part time or maybe just for a week. But there are opportunities out there for younger students. I know when I was... I think it was a sophomore in high school, so around 15 or so, I got the opportunity job shadow at Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland for a week. Mm. And so while that was not a formal internship, that was a fantastic opportunity for me. And so even if you are a younger student, you don't have to necessarily wait. You can contact some people and see what they can do to hook you up. 
<laughs> that's pretty cool so so what did you do at goddard like who, who'd you shadow i shadowed four different organizations during that week um i remember there was one group that was building a satellite don't ask me which one there was one group that was <laughs> studying the train on mars there was a group that was dealing with sort of trying to build sensors um and then i off the top of my head i can't remember what the fourth group was but that was a really mm. fantastic opportunity for me to dive into what these groups did and um i i think that really encouraged me to continue on to pursue science as my college degrees yeah that must have been a really cool week yeah hats off to the goddard space flight center education office what like 20 years ago whatever that was <laughs> Uh, okay, so the next question I have here is one that is super, super common. So in the show notes, I'll actually link to, to two different posts uh, that ask this question. But the question is, when are interns, um, whether they're accepted or denied, when are they informed about their application process? And what are the different stages of getting accepted? So that's a complicated question to answer because... First off, it's sort of a rolling admission process where there are three distinct times when you can apply to be an intern. There's fall semester, spring semester, and summer semester. So there's actually, uh, I believe July 1st is the deadline coming up for the fall semester. Um, so given that there are three different deadlines for the three different semesters, um, you can be informed three different times throughout the year. Also, each program does it a little bit differently. So some programs book up quicker than others. Some are much slower. Some don't inform you until quite late. And, and in fact, it's often that they change the dates that they're going to inform you because it takes longer wow. to go through the application process. So even if they tell you ahead of time mm -hmm. that you're going to be informed by, you know, such and such date, don't necessarily trust that. Don't think that if you haven't heard back yet, you're denied, rejected. You might actually still be in the running. You might have even been selected. They just haven't told you yet. So um, it's different for each program. It's different every year. They try to stick to the deadlines that they publish. Um, my recommendation is just to be patient. You'll look on the website, see what they tell you, um, but don't freak out if you haven't heard back by that date. I, I guess the flip, flip side of being accepted is, how quickly do they tell you that you've been denied? Is Do they do everything all at the end? Or will they let you know early on if you've been weeded out early? That question is also dependent on the internship program. So NASA doesn't have just one internship program. It has many. And they all are run either by different centers or different departments or even within the same center, the same or organizational areas will have different processes. And so for some people, um, they'll review them as they come, but most of them will review them in, in sort of a big stack where they await for all of them to come in and then they'll sit down and they'll go through them all and they'll weed some out and they might inform those people that they've weeded out early or they might not. Or um, if you're still in the running, but you don't quite make it or maybe you're on a, an unofficial waiting list, um, they might not tell you until pretty late, which, which is definitely nerve wracking for sure. This is why you don't just stick to one application. Um, put out feelers for many different internships and um, don't just stick to NASA internships. There's a lot of companies out there that do space that you could apply to. So diversify. It's better to have the option of accepting a whole pool of ones that you've been accepted to than just being rejected to all of them. Yeah, I was kind of curious on what, how much you know about other internships with other companies. And I guess most notably SpaceX because that's the one that everyone talks about. But obviously there's a whole bunch of them out there. Every space company that you can think of will probably have an internship opportunity. The larger companies will have very formalized 
most internship opportunities advertised on their websites. The smaller companies might just be taking one intern, two interns, three interns a summer. It might be more informal. Um, but almost every space company out there will be taking interns. And NASA has its civil servant branch, and that makes up a significant portion of the population on NASA centers. However, they also have a lot of contractors that also work at NASA centers. So if you are applying and they want to work in a NASA center, don't think that you only have to apply through NASA. You can apply, apply through ULA, SpaceX, you know, any of the companies that work with NASA, um, and you might still have an opportunity to work at a NASA center, just not being a specific NASA intern. It might be a Lockheed Martin or, you know, there's just so many different companies out there. And then there's ones that um, have popped up more recently that cater to the commercial space industry. Specifically, there's the Brooke Owens Fellowship Program, um, which is specifically for undergraduate women. And there's the Matthew, and I apologize, I can never remember his last name. Oh, Ikasowitz. That's it. Thank is- you. Isakowitz. That one is for um, men and women. I believe it's also undergrad. It might just be for engineers. But there are those internship programs and opportunities out there where you can intern at a commercial space industry company um, and either work at a NASA center or work, you know, if, if you wanted to apply at SpaceX, you could go work at Hawthorne or, you know, any of the locations where they have offices. Okay, so he, here's one that I, I'm pretty sure I know what the answer is. Should I contact PIs that I'm interested in interning for? This is actually a more complicated question that you might assume when you first read it. So um, you don't want to whether it's an internship program or a job, you don't want to directly ask people for jobs. That usually is a, a bit of a turnoff. People don't want to just have a bombardment of emails from strangers, especially students who don't have much experience yet, asking for jobs. But what you can do is you can ask questions. So especially if it's a, a government agency, they will have published email addresses for civil servants um, where you can find their contact information. And if you have legitimate questions, not just do you have an opportunity available, but if you have an actual research question or a question about their job or a question about their team, yeah, you can actually reach out to them. In fact, that shows that you have an interest in learning more. And you, you might even learn that's not the right opportunity for you, but you might learn that it mm. is. Um, and it also helps you to stand out by having that demonstrated interest. So I'm not telling you to contact everybody. Um, don't don't make up a question that, that is obviously just a made-up question that you can find out easily by Googling it yourself because um, that will just annoy them. But if you actually have real true interest in working for somebody – then go ahead and contact them. And that is part of networking. So networking is a really great way to find opportunities, whether it's an internship, a job, or just a a research project, even making just a friend. Um, So if you think about the fact that you are trying to build a relationship with people out working at NASA, go ahead and try to build that relationship. Start off small, start off, introduce yourself briefly and say, I'm truly interested in what you're doing. Can you tell me more about this specific aspect of it? And that might form a conversation. And from there, that person's going to get to know you. So your application could get walked through the process if that person wants you. Um, Now, Hmm. do not contact every single person out there who you know is taking on interns. That'll just annoy them. That'll get deleted. I I get a lot of these emails where it's, hi, my name is so-and-so at this university studying this. Thank you. 
And that's it. And I, I delete those, to be honest. I used to respond to them, but now I just delete them because there's nothing to respond to other than nice to meet you. <laughs> nice to connect with you over the email. Um, but if you actually want to form a relationship with someone, you know, it make it a two-way street, you know? So um, it's, it's more than just introducing yourself. You need to have something to contribute to the conversation. Uh, so do not bombard, bombard people with emails. Don't, don't just contact strangers just because you can. But uh, also, if the instructions on the application say not to contact anyone, then please do follow that because that oh. might even disqualify you if you break that. Um, but if it's yeah. legitimately someone that you are truly interested in asking a question with or forming a, a relationship, regardless of if you get an internship, then go ahead and reach out and start forming those relationships now. In fact, I had an unofficial internship at Kennedy Space Center that was formed just because I reached out to a colleague of mine while I was in graduate school and said, hey, I'm a little bored this summer. Can I come work with you? <laughs> and they found money. <laughs> and it was not through a formal internship program. It was an informal opportunity this person made for me because I reached out and expressed interest. So, okay. So another common question is what is a good strategy for international students? Because good obviously- question. Yeah. Many people think that because NASA is a government agency that international students aren't allowed. And that's not true. NASA has partnerships with certain governments and certain space agencies where they can take on international students. Now, sometimes it's a little bit more hoops to jump through. During one of my NASA internship programs, we actually took on an international student and he needed to have a formal badged escort at all times, which if you're in an internship program, you probably already will have a formal escort at most of the time anyway. So that was pretty easy. NASA currently has opportunities listed on their website as to which countries that they have partnered partnerships with. Um, and so sorry if you're not on that list. I apologize. But you might still find other opportunities at companies that are accepting international students. One question I'm finding actually as I'm kind of like doing a little bit more research as we go along here is it a common question and this really surprises me I, I wouldn't have ever thought of this but apparently a lot of people who are in the medical field want to know how they can be involved in aerospace so <laughs> do you have any advice there because apparently that's a very common question so when you think about all the aspects involved in spaceflight and especially human spaceflight you think about these are human beings and human beings need the medical community to contribute to the research and so there are absolutely lots of opportunities for doctors. Doctors who focus on astronauts as well as doctors or medical professionals who want to focus on using the microgravity environment to create better drugs or better prosthetics or whatever the case may be. And I want to point you to a nonprofit organization called the Aerospace Medical Association. They have an annual conference. They've got other activities where you can actually find these other medical professionals that work in the aerospace industry. Um, each astronaut core has doctors that are accepted within it. Maybe not every single one. I should take that back. But I know that there are doctors accepted in the astronaut core. There are flight surgeons. So there are so many opportunities either on the human spaceflight side or on the microgravity research side to get involved in aerospace medicine. In fact, when you're thinking about the future and you're thinking about some of the long-term human spaceflight and some of the settlements that we might create, doctors are going to be very much in demand. All of the astronaut flight crews are trained in basic medical science. So they have first aid kits and they, they know how to do some of the more basic medical procedures that might pop up on a spaceflight. But as the flights get longer and farther from Earth, they're going to need doctors to be with them 
uh, for, for every mission or mostly every mission. Next, a common question is, does a letter of recommendation make a big difference to an internship application? It certainly can, especially if you don't have demonstrated research experience or high grades. They are looking for ways to accept you. And if you have you know, kind of a, a weak portfolio of things to point to, but you have a really good letter of recommendation saying this person has, um, you know, overcome struggles. And so their GPA doesn't reflect their true talents or, you know, something like that. If you have somebody who can really vouch for you, then that can absolutely help. And even more so, um, it depends on who you ask. So if you ask somebody you've directly worked under, then they can vouch for your research experience or your work ethic. And that could really help as well. Even better if that person that writes you the letter of recommendation has a connection that they can really like help you with the name associations. That that doesn't always mm. happen, um, but it certainly can't hurt. Um, but again, it's even better if that person who's writing that letter of recommendation knows you very well and can speak to why you should be given a chance despite maybe a weaker uh, rest of the application. So, you know, there are all these different things that make up a good candidate. Um, obviously, if, you know, if you have a little bit of everything, that's great. But uh, can a, a potential intern reliably get into the program with just, you know, just one major thing, just grades or just a good letter or, you know, just good research experience? That would be a lot harder. NASA gets a lot of applications each year which is fantastic. NASA is a very popular uh, organization to want to go work for. Um, but they also have to weed people out. And so they, they, they're, they're trying to accept people, but at the same time, they, by necessity, by funding necessity, can't accept everybody. And so while they are cheering for you, they also are trying to cut you. Um, and so mm -hmm. if you only have one strong part of your application, that might not be enough to carry you along the application process when you have other applicants that have um, a more diverse, higher quality app, uh, application. It's a tough world. Um, so then I had a couple of questions about getting a job at NASA. And so I imagine that a lot of these are going to share some characteristics with previous answers, uh, but I feel like there are some good questions in here. So the first one is, what if I don't meet the requirements for a particular job? Um, so I actually have two quotes here to include. The first one's from Reddit. The quote is, uh, I'm currently one year out from graduating with a BS in mechanical engineering, and maybe around last year is when I decided I wanted to work at NASA. My GPA is below a 3.0, and I won't be able to bring it up by the time I graduate, not even to a 2.8. I know that the internship requires a 3.0 to even apply, so that's out of the question. My question is, what should my course of action be so I can at least put my foot in the door? What actual chance do I have of ending up at NASA? I have been applying to other internships but haven't been contacted back. Uh, my backup plan is that I would join the Air Force and then from there try to get experience in aviation and maybe even go for my master's and then leave the military and try to get into NASA. The only problem is that I feel like I would need to go for a minimum of six to eight years in the military just to get where I want to go. So what are his chances of working at NASA? Very high, it sounds like. Just probably not immediately. I was mm. just saying that there's a lot of applicants that come in to these internship programs or to the job postings, probably even more so to the job postings that NASA posts because NASA job postings are, are relatively uncommon compared to a lot of other 
industries. Mm. And the reason for that is everyone wants to keep working at NASA or keep working at the space industry so people don't really retire much. <laughs> so it's really hard to just apply if you don't have a very good, if you don't have a very good, strong, demonstrated history of either space or something related to space or a very strong, um, you know, GPA, you know, very strong application all around. So that makes it very, very hard to compete on the job market at NASA, where they are just getting interns or getting um, applications left and right. However, this person has a plan to continue on um, in their career regardless. And I love that. So it doesn't necessarily need to be the Air Force, but that sounds like a really great path. It could be graduate school. It could be uh, a second bachelor's degree to bring their GPA. Up, it, it could be you know finding a related job and working really well in that job, and all of those will give them experience, networking connections, uh, really a chance to prove themselves. Because it sounds like they didn't um, have that chance to prove themselves while they were an undergraduate. NASA can take and can hire people at any stage of, of one's career. So beginning, very, very beginning as a student or as a recent graduate or five years out or 10 years out very to the very end, they, they take retirees and they take them out of retirement. And so don't think that just because you don't have a 3.0 GPA right now and therefore you can't apply to be an intern that you're never going to work at NASA. That's just not true. As long as you keep refining your career and improving yourself and building that um, career history and that work ethics where you can really prove yourself and keep trying. That's the most important part. Don't think that, oh, I didn't make it as an undergrad, therefore I'm totally out. If you just keep trying, you'll eventually get it. And it might not be, you know, exactly what you have in mind right now. It might be that other path that you're talking about or something that comes up along that other path where you get into the Air Force and you've given it some really cool opportunity, whatever the case may be, just keep trying, just keep going towards that goal. Another question, uh, what career options are there for a NASA employee trying to transition to working at another NASA center or private space company. So I guess if you already work at NASA and you're trying to go somewhere else within NASA or maybe the private sector, how would you do that? Without knowing the questioner's specific situation, it's very hard to answer because it's really going to be dependent on um, your organization, your supervisor, and what opportunities might be out there that you're looking to switch to. So switching within an organization, whether it's NASA or a larger company, is relatively easy if you have your supervisor, your boss on your side. Um, much harder if you yeah, don't, yeah. Um, but not impossible because there's always internal postings that you could apply for with or without your supervisor's permission. <laughs> it just makes things mm -hmm. a little bit more difficult. Um, but if you do have your supervisor's permission, then then it should be relatively easy to switch within NASA or um, you know find opportunities for you to maybe do a temporary, what's the word? I can't think of the word right now, <laughs> but it's a temporary position within a different group. And that might give you the change that you're seeking for just temporarily, or it might be that they need you permanently and they take you on permanently. Um, now, applying for a job outside of NASA in a space company is super easy. All you do is apply. Um, you already have the demonstrated experience working in space. Um, it, I don't know what your specific uh, field is or what job you'd be looking for in the commercial space sector, but there's an abundance of opportunities for people who are already in it. And as the saying goes, it's easier to find a job if you already have a job. And so you mm. use that um, momentum that you already have in your current position and the time, because you're not in a time crunch, you're not, you're not unemployed, hopefully, 
and um, you can have the ability to, to use your connections or in some way find the right opportunity for you outside of NASA. And I know lots of people who have switched from NASA to the commercial space sector or NASA to university and back and forth. This one I grabbed because I see it fairly often, um, but there's absolutely no, uh, no context here. Uh, literally, the question is, how difficult is it to get hired at NASA? So NASA only has a certain number of civil servant positions, and it's actually very challenging to find opportunities open up because one, um, NASA has on a finite budget. NASA is given funding by Congress, and it's usually very well allocated depending on the directorate and the center. And so you have to find the opportunities where there are vacancies or new created uh, positions which is very, very challenging to do because two, people really enjoy their work at NASA for the most part. They do not want to leave. They do not want to retire. And so there's a lot of people just staying for a very long period of time and therefore vacancies are relatively rare. Now this is civil servant position. It's a little bit easier if you wanna work at a NASA center as a contractor. Um, there are opportunities with you know contracts going in and out, con new contracts starting up, um, contracts being transferred. There's always ways where you can find opportunities within a NASA contractor to go work at NASA. Another opportunity would be to get a NASA grant. Therefore, you're not, we're working for NASA in a way, indirectly, um, on a NASA mission or analyzing NASA science. Um, in some way connected to NASA. And so your funding comes from NASA. It might be some of your funding, it might be all your funding, but you are actually working for a university or a research center um, or even another company outside of a NASA center. So that's, that is very common and, and relatively easy to do. And that is one excellent way for non-US citizens to also work indirectly for NASA because universities tend to be much more open to hiring international employees. You handled that like a champ. Thank you. <laughs> it's a hard question. And a follow-up on that. Is it possible to get a full-time job at NASA without having a co-op or an intern experience at NASA? So I guess just yeah, straight Yeah, it absolutely in. is. There are relatively few co-op and internship positions compared to all of NASA. And so you'd actually find that most people um, working at NASA as a civil servant or a contractor probably, you know, I don't know percentages, but not all of them will have had internships of any kind, let alone an internship at NASA, especially if they're coming from another field. Um, so don't think that career paths are, are very linear. At career paths zigzag. And there are lots of people working at NASA who never thought that they'd work at NASA. And then they found this opportunity when they were 30 or, you know, whatever the case may be, um, where, of course, they never entered because they came to it later in life. So don't think that you have to have an internship or have to have a co-op in order to work for NASA. Um, it's not the case at all, but it certainly helps. And one of the ways that it really helps is for you to build up one, your experience working in a specific area of NASA and two, your connections. So finding those coworkers, um, you know, supervisors, even people who work in different departments that you run into and you meet, um, finding those connections can really help you down the road in terms of building up your career, especially if you want to keep working in the area that you've already started working in. And when we were it's kind of we're kind of in this general neighborhood, when we were talking on Twitter, you were saying, well, these questions that you've put together are very geared towards beginning careers. Um, and you were wondering if we wanted to answer any questions mid career. And I was kind of like, well, I don't 
I don't know what those questions are because I don't see them on Reddit. <laughs> uh, and, and you said that the the most common questions that you get from mid career folks are, uh, "Am I qualified to work at NASA? You know, and what what do I need to do to to become qualified?" So I'd kind of like to just uh, lobby a slowball and let you run on this one. Sure, there are actually quite a lot of people who are mid level. Uh, professionals in whatever field they've chosen, but they always had an interest in space and they always wanted to work at NASA and how can they do it even if they don't have a, a technical degree. And it is absolutely possible for them to work in the space industry in general, maybe a little bit harder for NASA just because of the limited opportunities, but they certainly can. It is definitely not unheard of for to see people who are um, you know, fairly recent to the space industry. They come from a totally different industry and they switch over. Um, and one of the things that I really need to have work with people when they come to me is that they are qualified. Yes, you can go back to school for another degree if you want to, but you don't have to most of the time. You already are working experience. You already have a skill set. You already have an expertise in whatever your background is. And so the trick is, one, the confidence building that yes, you can do it. And yes, you are qualified. And yes, you are even worthy to work in the space sector. And two, mm -hmm. that you have those transitional skills. And I help people figure out what those transitional skills are and how they can apply them to whatever job that they want to work. And in some cases, that does mean going back for another degree or some kind of certification. But most of the cases, it's just finding that niche. Um, I was listening to a different podcast today where it was a fertilizer company where they were helping NASA with fertilizing plants on the International Space Station. So it really just goes for the diversity of industries that can be involved in space, whether it's culinary arts or, you know, fashion that helps with spacesuits or whatever it is that people want to apply their talents. So if you have some kind of background in fashion, you don't need to go back for an engineering degree, not, not unless you want to. Um, you can just find ways to work within the NASA uh, organization or within a space organization that needs your expertise, whatever it is at that moment. And you, in fact, stand out because you have a different expertise than most of the other candidates. There's a lot to do at NASA. So one question apparently that's quite common that I think I know the answer to is, are there remote work positions at NASA? Because I think some some people probably just think of, you know, the Cape and maybe Houston and that's it. And, and I guess ISS doesn't count as a remote <laughs> work location. Well, I think it does technically, but. <laughs> okay. So first off, there are approximately 10 NASA centers, depending on how you count them. So there's more than just Florida and Houston. And there's, there's actually quite a lot. Um, second off, by design, NASA touches every state in the United States because NASA wants to be supported by a wide number of politicians. And so NASA's opportunities mm -hmm. are actually everywhere. Um, and it's usually not NASA specific. It's usually indirectly NASA via a contractor. Also, NASA, I mentioned this earlier, provides grants, and it's usually grants for scientific research or for an engineering project. And those grants or contracts can be done anywhere. And so you're not directly working for NASA exactly. You're not a NASA employee. You're not a civil servant, but you are still doing NASA work. And so don't tell people who are working at ULA in you know, Alabama that they're not working at NASA, even though they're, they're not technically in Huntsville, they're in Decatur, which is a little bit you know, just outside of Huntsville, but they're not actually working at Marshall Space Flight Center. Don't tell them they're not working at NASA because they feel like they absolutely are. They're building these rockets that, yes, some of them don't launch NASA things. Some of them, you know, they're working for the United States Launch Alliance, but they're also working on NASA 
payloads um, that'll go on their rockets. So um, it all interconnects. Another way to work remotely would be to be a national civil servant that is assigned elsewhere. So we've got NASA employees that are assigned to Canada and assigned to the European Space Agency. This is really relatively rare, but it does happen. Yeah. And I, I think this user might actually want to work from home. Oh, yeah, no. Okay. I'll and and I, I feel like NASA's NASA is not a great place to to apply for if you want to if you want to work from home, but yeah, they're definitely understood that now with um, flexible yeah. hours, flexible work, it might be that they can work from home occasionally, depending on um, their supervisor and their policies within their organization. But um, going to work at NASA means you're actually going to go work at NASA. And that is because most of the work that NASA does is very hands on and very integrated with different departments. And so you can't just stay home and hope to have meetings with all these people that you need to go talk to or work in some lab or you know, go, um, you, you can't build a spacecraft by working at home. Right. Uh, actually, I, so I, I clicked into the post. The user actually wants to work in Montana uh, because their significant other is going to be doing wildlife conservation in Montana. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Um, so for this person in particular, yeah. I would recommend that they look into some of the universities in Montana and see if they could be um, a researcher, a grad student, you know, some way to get involved in a NASA grant. Um, NASA also partners with other government organizations, the, the DOE, the DOD. Um, NASA partners with other government agencies to do research in, uh, around, the, around the country and, and, in fact, around the world. Uh, so there might be opportunities. There's, for example, there's the Sophia um, Airborne Observational mm. uh, Aircraft, which actually goes around the world and and does some really cool research. I don't know about Montana, but they do go around the world as they, they launch um, high, high altitude air balloons around the world as well. Um, and so there are remote locations, field work, um, where NASA does work. But in terms of working directly for NASA, I can't think of any opportunities within Montana. Yeah, it's, it's it's one of the few states that isn't known for its industry. And then I've got a final question on here that I really love. Uh, the question is, what should I wear to an interview? There's no shortage of advice out there as to what to wear to an interview. And the best advice that I could give is um, wear something formal. I saw a job applicant, a student, an undergrad student who was applying for a job in the lab I worked for who dressed like he was going to a funeral, which, you know, <laughs> it, it stood out. But at the same time, it wasn't, you know, ripped jeans and, and, and an old T-shirt. So it, it, it made him look professional. And that's what you want to do is you want to look professional. You want to look the part. Uh, this might not apply to um, some of the more hands-on engineering positions. So if you are going to be getting you know, rough and dirty, then you might not be wearing a suit and that's okay. Okay, but for an interview, I'd still recommend wearing a suit or at least trying to look somewhat formal. Um, there's also some outdated advice for women out there. Um, I would caution women, don't necessarily take some of the more outdated advice about pantyhose or, you know, um, women's fashion changes so much that it's kind of hard to pinpoint exactly, but it's still try to remain professional. Um, and, and men, it's a little bit easier because fashions don't change as much. But um, the, the key there is to look like you belong and not only look like you belong but look like you are happy to be there that you took time that you took care on your appearance and you really want to make a good impression and that'll reflect on the person that you meet with great okay well that that runs us through our our list of questions i i feel like i learned a lot here actually yeah 
Um, and I, I wasn't expecting to learn anything that was applicable to my life. And I feel like I did. Well, that's a good sign, huh? If I could just do a slight plug, if any students yeah. or recent graduates or mid-level professionals out there that need a little bit of assistance, they want to go work in the space industry and they just don't know how, or they're on the right track, but they need a little bit of help, have them contact me and go ahead and reach out to me. And I'm happy to chat with you. The first phone call's free. Uh, yeah. So uh, uh, why don't you tell us your website and your Twitter and anything else you want to get on the you air? You can find me at astrolytical that is my company name so it is astrolytical a-s-t-r-a-l-y-t-i-c-a-l.com and you'll find there links to the career coaching um and you can also find me on twitter astrolytical is the company twitter and my handle is laura forsick um reach out to me on linkedin as well happy to talk to you did you want to spell your last name because it's not oh yes <laughs> yeah it's it's a little bit of a, a hard one f-o-r-c-z-y-k and hopefully you'll have that in the show notes yeah. in the title yes yes absolutely okay well thank you so much laura it was an absolute pleasure talking to you again thanks so much for having you On two upcoming spaceflight events, just one, and it is uh, an interesting one. So this is a sea launch. Yeah, so this will be uh, this will be a first launching from the Yellow Sea, uh, a sea launch. But uh, the idea is that you know eventually you can kind of go and meander closer to the equator. And so this uh, launch will take place on June fifth at 0400 UTC, uh, and it'll be taking two Jilin One uh, Earth observation satellites. Which uh, right now there's uh, at least eight of them up there, but the idea is to ultimately have a huge a pretty big constellation of 138 remote sensing satellites ultimately just for earth observations and i like the fun fact that this rocket is named cz11 way as in w-e-y which is an automobile brand of a chinese car maker never heard of that one okay so it's like saying uh sls1 chevy (laughs) yeah (laughs) pretty much right Alrighty. well that's your one upcoming spaceflight event all right and so with that one upcoming spaceflight event let's uh do up the show and we would like to thank ronald jenkins and tim dodd for our music we record live on sundays at 9 a.m pacific 12 p.m eastern thank you to our five dollar and up patreon supporters joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly if you want to support the show as well please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's all, and we'll see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.